Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Congressman John Curtis, who represents Utah's 3rd District, is chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. He told the Washington Post that it's very important to us for the world to see that Republicans are very interested in the climate dialogue, that we want a seat at the table, and we feel like we have some good ideas. Uh, Here are some uh, bullet points from the website of the Conservative Climate Caucus, what we believe. Uh, The climate is changing, and decades of global industrial er uh, era has brought prosperity to the world, but also contributed to that change. Private sector innovation, American resources, and R&D investment have resulted in lower emissions and affordable energy, placing the United States as a global leader in reducing emissions. Climate change is a global issue, and China is the greatest immediate obstacle to reducing world emissions. Solutions should reduce global emissions, not just be feel-good policies. Practical and exportable answers can be found in innovation embraced by the free market. Americans and the rest of the world want access to cheaper, reliable, and cleaner energy. With innovative technologies, fossil fuels can and should be a major part of the global solution. And reducing emissions is a goal, not reducing energy choices. Those are some of the bullet points from the website. Uh, So we'll be talking with Representative Curtis today. We'll talk about fossil fuels, renewables, nuclear, hydrogen, methane, and more. Uh, just a couple of notes. We recorded this interview on Thursday. It's when the congressman was available. We recorded this from the studios of KCPW, so our, uh, thanks to those good uh, folks. Uh, we still would like your emails, so we won't be able to put those directly to the congressman. Love to know what you think, upraccess at gmail.com. We did have an email that came in before the interview was recorded. It's from Tom and Vernal, so Tom, you'll hear your, in a, uh, your email responded to by the congressman uh, later in this hour. Here's our uh, first part of our interview with Representative Curtis. Let me start with the Conservative Climate Caucus. The, how long has this been up and running? I believe you had a hand in founding this. You're the chair. What What is the uh, Conservative Climate Caucus? Well, I'm glad you asked. I love to talk about it. The Conservative Climate Caucus is uh, much like we the name. It's a group of conservatives who want to engage on a, on a conversations dealing with the climate. And... Uh, we feel like uh, we have a voice, and it's an important voice, and we want to be at the climate table. So uh, why? Why did you uh, start this up? Well, I tell you, um, it's been a, um, a regret to me that many conservatives are silent on this issue. And the silence is often interpreted as not caring or somehow denying the science. And I just find that not to be the case. I think we care deeply, as deeply as our uh, our colleagues on the left. And I think we have a lot of good ideas, and so I wanted to to go on the offensive and and share what our ideas were and make sure that we were part of the conversation. The um, the, the polls uh, there's a seem to be a growing divide between Democrats and Republicans over the past several years. I'm looking at Gallup poll from last year. Um, 82% of Democrats, 59% of Independents, 29% of Republicans uh, believe that uh, climate change was human caused. Two thirds of Democrats uh, felt that warming, global warming, is a serious threat to themselves. Forty-three percent of independents, eleven percent of Republicans. Uh, are you seeing that? you when you talk to people in the party? You know, I think um, if I could, uh, if I could indulge, just to change a little bit of your language. For instance, if if we said, you know, who's concerned about the environment? Who's concerned about uh, greenhouse gas emissions? I could increase those Republican numbers dramatically. And uh, I think a lot of times the way that question's asked kind of is a little bit of a turnoff, quite frankly, to conservatives. And and I think that's been why many of them have not spoken up on this subject. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, tell me again the, the language you would have the question asked again. Well, I think so often we, we use the question about is the climate changing and is it man's fault as a little bit of a litmus test. And um, so the question has quite a the, is the climate changing is pretty you know black and white. It either is or it isn't, and, and most people don't struggle with that. But the role of, of man on that ranges all the way from it's all 100% their fault to man's having an influence on that. And I think frequently the way we ask that question, it, 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 it tends to be like, oh, it's absolutely 100% uh, man's fault. And if we don't do something tomorrow, the planet's going to blow up in seven years. And all of that, I think, is quite um, a turnoff to, to many conservatives. Hmm. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Uh, so even if you were to go out, you know, Gallup was to use that wording, I'm guessing, you know, among Republicans, it wouldn't be 100%, right? Uh, well, I'll still... tell you how we get 100%, <laughs> if I can. Right. If I'm in a town hall meeting and I say, who wants, to, who wants to leave this earth better than we found it for our kids, I'll get you 100%. If I'm in a town hall meeting and I say, who thinks less pollution is better than more? I'll get you 100%. Uh, less plastic in the ocean is better than more. Less carbon in the air is better than more. Uh, I'll get you 100%. And um, so I, th- I found great success by um, simply um, trying to, to, to appeal to a, a, a perhaps more of a basic feeling that we all have of being good stewards over this earth and taking uh, responsibility for our actions. And, and I find I can, you know, I represent a very, very, very Republican district, and I can get them to engage on that level and, and have real meaningful conversation, which gets us much quicker to solutions than if we get stuck on the debate about exactly how we're talking about it. Hmm. Um, do you bring this up at town halls? Do you, oh, I, you I, do? yeah, mm-hmm. I do. I, but you'll laugh with me for a minute. My I was like many Republicans when asked in a town hall meeting if the climate was changing and how much man's influence it had. I, I had a, a, a dozen brilliant answers that didn't answer the question, <laughs> right? And I think a lot of my Republican colleagues are that way. And I remember very clearly the town hall meeting. I looked at somebody and he said, well, of course it's changing. Of course man's had some influence on it. And the next morning at the front page of the local paper was, you know, was about that uh, that statement. But I, I do bring it up at town hall meetings, and it's frequently brought up. People now know I talk about climate a lot, and so they're they're interested to know. They want to know if I'm off on the deep end, or they want to know what my you know wh- how I'm talking about it. And I I actually really like to talk about it, and I and I find that I can engage people you know no matter their political spectrum in a really thoughtful conversation about our responsibilities, um, and I and I really like that. So you say, you know, even 100% if you uh, talk about who cares about the environment, right? Who cares about leaving a better world? Um, yeah. Um, so uh, there there might uh, be a little bit of division, say, between Republicans and Democrats, if you talk about urgency, you know, how imminent a problem this is. Uh, I think, do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair uh, observation. And um, I think that's one of the things that turns off Republicans as well. You know, when, when we hear from the, the climate czar that the earth's going to, you know, explode in seven years, and I'm, I'm using my own words, I'm uh, uh, exaggerating a little bit, but that, you know, that's hard for Republicans to wrap their, their head around. Um, and in, in Washington, D.C., everything's a crisis. You know, the post office is a crisis, and Ukraine's a crisis, and, and everything's a crisis. So when we say climate's a crisis, I think we've overused that word. I don't think it really. I don't think it has the effect that people are hoping that it has. I think it's used sometimes to to provoke an action from somebody, um, and I don't think it's the best way to to get a movement on this issue. 
of course, you know, a lot of scientists are, I don't know if you use the word crisis, but, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that uh, there's some urgency here. Oh, I, and I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And I think it's, but I think it's important in the way that we talk about it. And here's the reality, and the scientists would agree with this, is we're on a trajectory for warming. And, and if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, we're going to still continue to warm. We're still going to see the effects of a warming planet. And that's a, that's a reality. That's right. That's science. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And so sometimes I think it's a little false argument to say, listen, if you don't start polluting today, we're going to have all these drastic outcomes. I think a better conversation is, look, here's what's happening. Here's our trajectory. We're going to see rising sea levels. We're going to see droughts. We're going to see right all, all of these things. Now, uh, we can... We can, um, the quicker we act, uh, the, the fewer and lesser, less severe those are going to be. But let's at the same time talk about what we're going to do with rising sea levels and how we're going to respond to that. And I, I think that's a, a, a more thoughtful way to approach it rather than, you know, the sky's falling, um, we're all in trouble, um, you got to stop what you're doing immediately or we're all going to die. Before we get into some of the solutions you're proposing, I want to talk about the electoral politics of this, which is important, of course. You, if you're not, if you don't get reelected, you can't work on this. Um, so, first of all, from um, I guess from the from the left, you might say, quote unquote, younger voters. Uh, younger voters, by and large, are you know have this as a maybe a pretty high priority. Um, I guess what your message is. I've been reading one of your messages to your fellow Republicans is. Uh, you know, we better start paying attention to the younger voters. Yeah, and you, you'd mentioned from the left, but I think it's from the right and the left with our younger voters. I, I represent the youngest district in the country, and I sometimes uh, think maybe this is why I'm ahead on this issue. I see it in their eyes, you know, and you, we, we talked about town hall meetings, and I, I see that we're going to lose uh, these uh, re- young Republicans. Uh, this is a single issue for a lot of them, and it may not be that way for their parents, but I think for many of our youth, this is a very, very important issue. What about uh, do you worry about getting primaried as being too yeah. soft well, on the on the on the environment or climate? Well, that's that's a foregone gone conclusion, and I'm okay with that. Um, I, I I need to do what I think is right uh, without regard to to reelection, and I think this is the right thing to do. But you're right; uh, there there will always be those who will come at me from the right and say, "Always oh, gone off the deep end." Um, it's hard to word, utter the word climate without some, being accused of going off the deep end. And, and yet I think if they listen to my message, they'll see uh, the importance uh, for conservatives to engage in this conversation and why it's a mistake for us not to engage. You've called uh, this in part a branding problem for Republicans. Uh, and I think one of the things you mean by that is there are more Republicans than you that are concerned about this, <laughs> maybe more than people realize. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I do. So um, what I found, and it goes back to, to, to some of our earlier conversations, is that Republicans care deeply about the earth. They care, you know, I mean, they have great concern about leaving it better than they found it. Now, they have questions about how we got here and how we get out of here. But I think it's I think the branding problem comes in is that we often come off as not caring that we that we somehow are okay with destroying the planet. And uh, I've simply found that that's not true. And I and this is why I think Republicans need to stand up and say, absolutely, we care. Now, our ideas might be a little different than yours. And that's okay. We can have that debate, but it, it should start on the foundation that we do care. Uh, of course, some would say, um, you know, got your work cut out for you. For a lot of Republicans, uh, you know, supported President Trump, withdrawal from Paris Agreement, uh, just one example. 
So uh, I, I, I know where that comes from. I certainly understand that. But we've surprised ourselves. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. When we formed this caucus, well, let me go back even a little bit before the caucus was formed. Uh, a year ago, almost at this exact time, we decided we wanted to, to start going aggressive on this. And I knew I, I knew I had to do more. So we said, well, let's invite some Republican lawmakers to Utah to talk about the climate. We'll, we'll start the conversation. And my team... Uh, said, great, it's a good idea. If you have five or six, we're going to call this a success. So we invited Republican lawmakers to come out to Utah last year at this time and have a conversation about the climate. Shockingly, 25 members came to Utah, flew out to Utah to discuss climate, Republican members. Six of those were ranking members, so the leading Republicans on on committees over energy and commerce, over natural resources, people who who you know, had quite a bit of say in this, all came to Utah to talk about the climate. And a lot of people say, well, why didn't we hear about it? And it's because some of them that came said, look, I'm a little uncomfortable. I, I don't want the press to know that I'm there because you're talking climate. And so that's kind of to your point, right? But to my point, 24 of them came to talk about climate. And then when we launched the caucus just a, a month or two later, 75 Republican members signed up publicly to be part of this caucus. And the first tenet of the caucus is that the climate's changing and Matt's had some influence over it. That's a third of all Republicans in the House voluntarily came to me and said, I want to be part of your caucus. I was as shocked as you are, right, as anybody else, that there were that many who were ready to talk about this and and um, and to hit it head on. So I was really pleased with that. And I, I know in some quarters, there are still some that are uncomfortable talking about it. And I get that. I've been there myself. But I think at the same time, there's there's far more willing to talk about it than not. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And we're uh, uh, talking with uh, Congressman John Curtis. He represents Utah's 3rd District. He's chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. And uh, he says that it's important to him and uh, the Republicans that they have a seat at the table and that they have some good ideas and that they're interested in climate dialogue. Following a break, we'll get into uh, some specifics. We'll talk about fossil fuels, renewables, nuclear energy, hydrogen, methane, and more. Representative Curtis, by the way, is a member of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And prior to serving in Congress, he was mayor of Provo City and a small business owner in Provo. Just a note here before we go to break, uh, the other representatives, under other congressmen, or the three other congressmen in Utah, are all members of the con- uh, congressional, uh, conservative, congressional, uh, conservative Climate Caucus, I should say. Uh, Representative Blake Moore, Burgess Owens, Chris Stewart, so all four are members of this uh, caucus. We'll have more following this break. Support for UPR's 2022 legislative coverage comes from our members and USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. This is Gina Wickwarfer bringing more to life. Aging adults benefit from social support, which is essential to living independently longer. 
Positive social experiences in late age are linked with immediate health benefits, including better immune function. Research shows that even if they don't remember, positive social interactions with persons with dementia yield more positive behavior and higher well-being, both short-term and long-term. Whether at home or in a care facility, find time to interact with an older adult, with or without dementia. Simply listen to the person express his or her thoughts, feelings, and needs, and you will both smile. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cache and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. The LaVey family is about to meet Flip's new girlfriend. Flip's girl's a little melanin challenge. Melanin challenge? Oh, she white! She's She's Italian. Italian. Dulé Hill and Carl Lumley star in Stick Fly by Lydia Diamond. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... It's global reggae with reggae in many variations from Italy, Okinawa, Easter Island, and beyond. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Pack your bags and join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. That happens to be Congressman John Curtis, who represents Utah's 3rd District. We are going to get into talking about some specifics uh, in the rest of the hour here. Fossil fuels, renewables, nuclear energy, hydrogen, methane, and more. Uh, If you would like to get an email in, we'd love to know what you think. We'll be able to have the congressman respond directly to it because we recorded this interview on Thursday, but we'd love to know what you think. Upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. In this segment, we will hear the congressman respond to uh, Tom's email because he got that in uh, last week before the interview. Upraxcess at gmail.com is the email Let's talk about some specifics. Are there some things do you, do you think there can be bipartisan support on? Absolutely. And I, I, let me just click off a, a, a few. And interestingly, the more I talk to my Democratic colleagues, the more areas I find of agreement. So I, I kind of put these into three different buckets. Uh, the first bucket would be renewables. Uh, Republicans like renewables. We have no problems with renewables. Sometimes we think they're overemphasized, but we, we have no problems with renewables. But renewables have a fatal flaw. And that's storage, right? Until we get better storage, renewables can't be everything that we need them to be. Well, Republicans are very excited about leading out on U.S. technology with battery storage or other, you know, hydrogen storage, other types of storage. And that's a, you know, that's a vast area where we can work with our Democratic colleagues and and find strong agreement uh, on that. Uh, Another bucket is, uh, I call them uh, emerging technologies. These are technologies like fusion and like hydrogen and and new nuclear. And um, I find that my Democratic colleagues are all in on, on all of these technologies and, and like Republicans, want to invest in American technology and, and give uh, American innovation a, a, 
um, an untethered leash to to do all that they can do in these categories. And um, I, I mentioned new nuclear. I um, it's hard to find a Democrat who won't agree that we're not going to get where we need to go in a green future without nuclear being a part of it. And Republicans love to talk about nuclear. So those are some really strong areas. I think the the one area where you're going to uh, find perhaps the most disagreement is my third bucket, and that's fossil fuels. And um, there are many Democrats who just don't like fossil fuels, period. I don't, I don't think I'm uh, misrepresenting them in, in that. And there's a lot of Republicans who feel like fossil fuels, fuels have been villainized. I represent Carbon County, and, and I've seen firsthand not only, not only have we villainized fossil fuels, but we've villainized the, the very people that, that uh, you know, for decades and decades sacrificed their health and their, their way of life to produce those so that we could all be at 70 degrees uh, in, in, in the summer and, and in the winter. But if you look at the United States over the last decade, we have reduced more greenhouse gas emissions than, the, than, than a host of countries combined. It, depending upon the period of time you look at, more than a dozen of the next greenhouse gas reducing countries combined. And how have we done that? We've actually done that with a fossil fuel, natural gas. So you have to say, is there a role for natural gas in China? Is there a role for natural gas in India in reducing greenhouse gas emissions? And I think that's a conversation Republicans want to have that sometimes is a little difficult for our Democratic colleagues. And then, of course, I throw into that bucket uh, carbon sequestration and the ability to use fossil fuels and ca capture the carbon at the same time. I know. That, I'm sorry. That was a whole. That was a no, mouthful. That's, but that's great. But, no, yeah. uh, and I'll follow up with, with with those as we go along. I just uh, this would be a good time to bring in a uh, a question from a listener. Uh, you know, put out to my listeners that uh, me talking to Congressman Curtis about the uh, Congressional Climate Caucus and uh, and our li uh, listener uh, Tom Tom Elder uh, sent the email this in, and it fits right here with with your talk about fossil fuels. Uh, so I'll just read this and have you respond to this, uh, Congressman. Um, so t Tom says, uh, Congressman Curtis said recently in a radio interview, we can use fossil fuels to reduce greenhouse gases, and we have. Uh, and then now here's Tom. Coal produces a lot of CO2, oil produces less CO2, and natural gas produces less CO2 still. But burning any of them contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. Some are less bad than others, that's all. How does burning any of them reduce greenhouse gases, as you've stated? And then he goes on to say, uh, fossil fuels will only help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions permanently if we're willing to walk away from coal toward oil, away from oil toward natural gas, and ultimately away from natural gas. That permanent reduction in emissions is only as possible if you leave some of the fossil fuels unburned. And he goes on to say, why not? It's uh, not like they're going anywhere. Uh, I wonder what your response to that is. Yeah, from. I think it's very important to to look at the worldwide greenhouse gas emission um, situation. I think a lot of times we we fool ourselves by saying, hey, it's all about reducing U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Well, the reality of it is we're, we're something around 14 or less percent of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. So if the United States gets to zero, who cares, right? If, if China continues to increase greenhouse gas emissions at the rate that they're currently increasing, they're opening a coal plant every week over in China. And so to answer his question, you have to look at the worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. And, and then you also have to remember that there are 800 million people without any form of fuel right now that are going to start moving towards that, that level of prosperity where they'll have fuel. Currently, they're, you know, at best, they're going to burn wood or they're going to burn dung. 
and that's 800 million people. So how do we move them to windmills and, and solar farms? You can't. You just can't do that. Fossil fuels have to play a role in that. I had an opportunity to speak with uh, one of the world's uh, energy experts, and he, he, his personal opinion is fossil fuels will be with us for the next 50 years. So then you have to start asking questions like, well, what would happen? I mean, think about this to, to, to our listener. If we reduced the coal that China was burning from Russia with U.S. coal, which burns much cleaner, we would dramatically lower greenhouse gas emissions. Well, what if we reduced China's coal with U.S. natural gas? What if we reduced China's Russian natural gas that they buy from Russia with U.S. natural gas, which has a 40% lower greenhouse gas cycle uh, lifetime uh, record than Russian natural gas? And then you start to say, wait a minute, we could reduce more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire Green New Deal combined if every aspect of the Green New Deal was put together simply by replacing uh, Russian coal with U.S. natural gas. So a lot of times the U.S. uh, energy sector says, wait a minute, you're you're villainizing us, and yet we could play a major role in this right now. And and let let me give you the worst example of all, which is the Keystone Pipeline. So President Biden shuts down the Keystone Pipeline and says, doesn't that feel good? I'm, I'm, I'm doing what's best for the environment. Well, let's see what, what is the result of shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. We didn't change demand. The U.S. didn't change demand by shutting it down. We're still importing that, that, that oil. It's just not coming from Canada on a green pipeline. It's being trucked in on diesel trucks from Canada, or it's coming from Venezuela, or it's coming from Russia. And so that's why I think fossil fuels have to be part of the conversation because they're with us. They're going to be with us. And he is right in his assessment that some burn dramatically better than others. And I'm fine with, with that and favoring those that burn better. But the, but the reality of it is we're not getting to where we need to go without fossil fuels. And, and it doesn't help to demonize them. And then I need to throw in on top of that, that whole picture changes if we refine carbon sequestration. If we can get to the point where we can burn fossil fuels without putting carbon out into the atmosphere, this would be a good time for I think for me to bring in um, global security. Uh, yes. Where does climate change fit into that? What should we be doing to you know dual dual track uh, reduce yeah. carbon emissions and uh, keep ourselves secure? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm I'm old enough to remember the '70s and fuel rationing. I'm sure many of your listeners will remember that too. And we made a decision at that time as a country that we were not going to be dependent for energy on our enemies. And so we, we worked for decades to become energy independent. And just at the, at the peak where we reached that energy independence, where we didn't have to go to Russia for fuel, where we didn't have to go to uh, some of the Middle East countries that are our enemies for fuel, we're now saying, no, we're shutting, our, we're shutting ours down and we're going to go th- for them, t- to them for fuel. Unless you get President Biden shutting down the Keystone Pipeline and going to Putin and saying, please increase your production. Does anybody see why that's not good for the environment, right? And so I think that, uh, yes, we must have this goal to to get down to, to zero greenhouse gas emissions, but we need to do this smart. And let me give you a good example where we're not being smart about it. Right now, um, nuclear burns, um, burns 100% no greenhouse gas emissions, and yet... By 2030, when President Biden wants to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half, we will have cut our current nuclear fleet in half. It's near impossible to permit for for a nuclear facility right now. And I think that's a mistake. I think that's how we wing ourselves from from fossil fuels. And it's how we become and stay energy uh, independent as a country. And I think for national security, that's just absolutely critical. 
I want to talk about nuclear and some of the other things, but um, is is are those twenty thirty targets doable? Well, I, I'm a, I'm personally a, a goal guy. I like to set goals. I like to set targets, and, and I, I've always approached things in my life like it's it's better to shoot high and, and miss it than to not shoot at all, right? So it's going to be difficult to get to reduce fifty percent by twenty thirty, but but let's set our goals high, right? I don't have any problem with that. The problem is we're really not responding as a country in a way that will make that possible. And, and what I mean by that is we're feeling really good about throwing charging stations up along freeways, but we're not talking about the fact that we don't have a grid to get to the charging stations. And we're not talking about the fact that even if we had the grid to get to the charging stations, we don't have the resources to send the power to the charging stations. And so I think we've fooled ourselves a little bit with some of these things that feel good rather than going down right to the heart of the matter and saying, look, it's going to take and I'm throwing out a number here, I don't know the number, 20 nuclear plants opened up in in the next 10 years if we're going to do that. And by the way, it takes 10 years to permit a nuclear plant, <laughs> right? And so I, I think, like, yeah, what we're doing is, is is fine, but we're really not having a serious question about how we make that 2030 happen or the 2050. There is disagreement among the environmental community about nuclear, um, but there are some in the you know environmental community that feel that the... It sounds like you do, that we we absolutely need nuclear. Is that where you are? I don't know how you get to uh, cutting greenhouse gas emissions in half, let alone 100% without nuclear. Nobody has shown me a formula uh, where that happens. I, I will say this. I don't think we need to look at nuclear um, as our grandparents' nuclear. Uh, the, the research, the innovations that, that are happening with nuclear, I think it's fair to say, look, I'll, to those environmentalists that you mentioned, if they would simply say, I would accept nuclear if, give us that challenge as a country, and I think we'll check those boxes. So, for instance, I'd accept it if we knew how to deal with waste. Great. Let's take that challenge. I'd accept it if we knew that it was absolutely safe. Great. Let's take that challenge. And I personally believe that we could do that as a country, that we could answer those questions that people have about nuclear, and uh, we just need to unleash uh, American innovation. And I think in many ways that's already happening with nuclear. Do, uh, do you see anything out there specifically according to, uh, regarding waste and uh, yeah. and safety that uh, gives you some hope about that? You know, interestingly, in Emory County, um, uh, of all places, they've started a, a, a uh, energy research facility in there in Emory County. They see their coal plant. Uh, they have a coal-fired plant there, and they know that's closing. They're trying to, to be innovative and in providing jobs down there. So they've got a research center, and they're working on molten salt technology. And they've got a, a number of uh, BYU professors involved. I've talked with them. They tell me they think they can get nuclear waste to zero by using the isotopes. Uh, some of those isotopes are medical isotopes uh, that could be used and are very rare. And those are the types of uh, innovations that I'm talking about. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how to validate their claims, but I think they're serious scientists. And I think you know, there are other people uh, that are on that same track. And um, I think I, I, I don't see why we can't get there. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Congressman John Curtis. He represents Utah's 3rd District. Uh, specifically, we're talking to him about environment, climate. He is chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. And uh, we're talking with him about uh, this topic in general and some specifics. Fossil fuels, renewables, nuclear energy, hydrogen, methane, and more. Uh, we would uh, love to see what you think on these topics 
upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, place to, to email us, upraxcess at gmail.com. Our thanks to KCPW, the good folks there, for their help with this interview. We'll have more with uh, Congressman Curtis following this break. This is the 15 Things Utahns Can't Live Without During a Pandemic, on-air edition. Honest reflections from regular people about the objects and things that have mattered most the last two years. Hi, my name's Lucas Bybee. I'm a photographer from Logan, Utah. Mine's relatively focused on hiking and outdoors. I think all of us can relate a little bit to uh, being stuck in the house during the pandemic and trying to get out and find something new, find some new trails to hike and what have you, maybe go camping a little bit. I know a lot of us did that during the pandemic. So yeah, in my picture, I incorporated my water bottle that I can't live without, uh, my boots for hiking, and my, my red hoodie that I wear nonstop, as well as a Cache Valley Trail book. So I want to talk a little bit about my camera. I do a lot of photography in Logan, as is, but I did a lot more during the pandemic, especially going out and hiking on a lot of these trails and whatnot. So a lot of pictures taken during the pandemic, a lot of pictures of uh, my pets taken during the pandemic. So again, another reason to incorporate the trail book to get out and take some uh, lovely shots of the outdoors and what have you. And I also incorporated my cell phone. I think we all can relate to that a little bit, uh, needing our cell phones during the pandemic. Maybe not needing them so much, but definitely using them. So also I wanted to talk a little bit about croquet. My family are croquet fanatics. We play croquet all summer long and we played it an exceptional amount during the pandemic. We play so much that we've actually invented our own version of croquet. My dad literally mows out the grass in a sort of obstacle course that we, we play with. So a lot of croquet played during the pandemic as well. That about covers everything. I've got my boots, I've got my hoodie, I've got fellowship, and I've got my camera. Those are the vital things. And obviously masks, hand sanitizer were a few things. I think we all know why that was incorporated. To learn more about the project and to listen to the rest of the stories, go to upr.org. What are the 15 things you can't live without during a pandemic? We set out to find the answer to that question in 2021, launching a photo storytelling project from Cash Arts, Utah Public Radio, and photographer Maria Ellen Hubner. You have an opportunity to see the results of that project right now at the Brigham City Museum of Art and History. The collection of images will be up from February 12th to June 18th, and admission is free, so we hope you'll check it out. For more details about the project, go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Congressman John Curtis, chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus today. Uh, he represents Utah's 3rd District. He's a member of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. Prior to serving in Congress, uh, Representative Curtis was mayor of Provo City and a small business owner uh, in Provo. Love to know what you think about the subject we're talking about here. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Talk to me a little bit about bridges too far. Um, so Green New Deal, I think you're not on board. Uh, President Biden's recent infrastructure deal, I think you did not support. Uh, what? I don't know anybody that's on board. <laughs> and I say that knowing, yes, there are people that have signed up to it. But like, well, first of all, I don't, I don't know anybody that can really describe what the Green New Deal is. So what I mean by that is uh, ideas have been thrown out of like no airplane travel. But as soon as you say that, somebody says, well, that's not in the Green New Deal. 
And so I think, first of all, nobody really understands. Well, very few people actually understand what the Green New Deal is. I know I don't. Um, and so I, I, I think for Republicans, a, a lot of what seems to be promoted with the Green New Deal is a bridge too far. I, is no airplane travel really realistic? Is no agriculture really realistic? Um, and that's why I think a lot of Republicans kind of roll their eyes when you say Green New Deal. In truth, I don't know anybody on the Democratic side who's really defining what the Green New Deal is and what is it they're really proposing. What about the president's uh, proposal, uh, you know, infrastructure package, for example, other proposals he's put out there? Any of those you could support? Sure. And, uh, I mean, when you spend $1.9 trillion, you're going to find a few things you like, right? But um, this is if – I, if I could get the attention of the president, maybe he listens to your broadcast. So uh, if he's listening, this is what I would tell him is, look – we're, we need to start with the end in mind. That's a famous Stephen Covey quote, right? What is the end in mind? The end in mind is reducing worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. And so what we're doing too often are, are little projects that feel good. So this is important to this senator. Or this is important to this representative. So we're going to put that in the package. And they're all things that do lead to lower greenhouse gas emissions. But nobody is mastermind the grand master plan that says as a, as a planet – this is how we reduce worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. And I, I personally think that's a mistake. I wonder if you'd uh, maybe tell me a little bit more about some of those things you enumerated. Uh, let's start uh, perhaps with, with hydrogen. Are, yeah. are we seeing good good things there? Do you How much of uh, this problem can be fixed with hydrogen? I guess it's everything together, but talk about hydrogen. Yeah, I think that, it's, that hydrogen definitely needs to be part of our analysis and part of our discussion. I believe, you know, when we look back 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now, we're going to surprise ourselves with what it actually was. And so I think it's impossible to say, oh, it's going to be fusion, right, or it's going to be hydrogen. But I think we need to pursue all of those potential areas with all gusto and all vigor uh, because we don't know which one will lead to something else or which one will actually pan out and, and, and be all that we think it can be. Um, and so... I like hydrogen uh, as I understand what it is and its potential. And, and let me give you a really good example of, of how it could be used. I was over in Scotland, and Scotland has uh, a vast resource of wind. And so they have built up windmills all over the country. And I guess what? Every once in a while, the windmills don't blow. They're working on the storing energy with hydrogen from the windmills so the windmills don't blow. They can use that hydrogen. Boy, that's it, right? And because right now... It's a fatal flaw that they can't store energy in Scotland, right? They have to go import natural gas when those windmills don't stop blowing. But it looks like hydrogen can play a major role for them in storage. And uh, that's a pretty exciting technology. Tell me a little bit more about uh, about storage. Uh, you, you say that's the key to renewables. Uh, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about renewables uh, you know, more broadly. But uh, talk about storage. Well, um, everybody knows when the sun goes down and the wind doesn't blow, our renewables, um, you know, they have a fatal flaw. And so we can build all of them that we want. But in, until we figure out a good way to store that energy, um, they're going to be limited in their application and how much of a role they can play. And I think the race is on for storage, and I want the U.S. to win it. We're seeing a lot of battery uh, technique coming out of China. And I personally uh, want the United States to lead on this. I'm, I've got a bill to sponsor uh, some some help uh, for battery storage uh, because the, I because I think it's a critical part of the puzzle. And and I you know I mean I hear some really exciting um, advances, 
And I think we're on the cusp of some really good things with storage, but just not quite there yet. Renewables, I think, get a lot of attention. Um, uh, how big a piece of the pie can renewables be in, in uh, reducing carbon? Well, I, I forget the exact numbers. They have grown, as, as you know, in the last few years to be a, a pretty good chunk of our energy. And I think we're going to see that if we can't get storage, that's going to taper off. And, and I don't think it can continue to grow uh, without the storage. Um, I don't know anybody that doesn't think that using renewables isn't smart, that it's part of a of mix of energy. Um, I think to, to the extent that, that people would want to put all of their eggs in that basket, I think that's a mistake right now. Uh, and I think we need to be following and, and, and progressing uh, other techniques as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about methane. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's piece of here, right? Reducing methane emissions. Uh, how how can we do that? Well, I will acknowledge that if natural gas is going to play a role, um, we must uh, get better control over methane. I, I think that's a problem uh, right now, and I think it's one I'm trying to get uh, Republicans to understand and, and participate in. Uh, methane is a very lethal, as you know, and more lethal uh, than than carbon in the air. And um, we have uh, a lot of situations um, where, uh, as we produce uh, natural gas or, um, you know, as we're mining, that we're letting methane go into the air. We have a lot of uh, U.S. landfills, a lot of cities with their waste treatment plants are are flaring off methane. And I, I think it's, in my opinion, it's kind of the, the part of, of um, this whole climate conversation that is most often overlooked. Um, what's the best intersection of uh, reducing this, what many would call an urgent problem, um, versus economy, jobs? Yeah, I think this is the exciting thing about the conservative message is we don't think you have to give up one to get the other. And um, I, I think that's important because, you know, we talked about polling early on. Some of that polling will tell you that the threshold of pain that people are willing to, to they'll tell you it's important, but their threshold of pain as far as how much more they're willing to pay is, is actually pretty low. Um, but I'm convinced that we don't need to destroy the U.S. economy, that we don't need to use lose U.S. jobs. As a matter of fact, I think if we do this right, we'll actually enhance and prosper the U.S. economy. And I, I think that's an important message conservatives bring to the conversation. What about uh, individual lifestyle changes? Do you, do you advocate that? Uh, you know, that uh, <laughs> I get on a bike, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and how, how much of a piece of the puzzle is that? You know, I hard, it's hard to know, like, from a math perspective how important it is. But I'll tell you from a, a psychological perspective, I think it's very important. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Is like, so many of us that live here in Utah watch this phenomenon every Sunday, right, where uh, you, you have a church on almost every block, and if you're not careful, you're going to get all your neighbors running you over if you try to walk to church, right? And, and if I'm honest, right, the Curtis family, uh, when, we, when all of our kids were at home, not only took a car to church two blocks away, we, we may have taken two or three cars to church two or three blocks away. And, and, the, and I think it's important for Americans to evaluate that and say, you know what? I'm going to walk to church. It's two blocks away. I'm going to walk. I'm going to leave five minutes early, and I'm going to walk. Because if I'm not willing to do that, why would I expect U.S. business or U.S. Congress to to take action if I'm not willing to do those very simple things? And, and that's why I, th I think it's important, like I say, psychologically for the, the psyche of the country to say we're all in. All of us are part of this. Uh, we're all willing to do the small things. Listen, when you shovel your walks, you make it easier for somebody 
uh, to, to walk to the grocery store or to church, you should feel like you're doing your part. When you change your light bulbs to LED, you should feel like you're doing your part. Uh, when I was mayor a few years ago, I, I got challenged and I started riding my bike to work and I, I, I made myself a challenge that I would do it 100 days uh, in a year, ride my bike to work. And I will tell you some of my most delightful commutes, some of my most delightful days were the days I rode my bike, uh, where I could smell the, the grass, right, where I could see the city park, where I could see the, the potholes and know what's going on in my city. And it, it was a great experience for me. So I do think we should make efforts and that they do count. Um, and and here's a little math, though, that's easy to do. There are half a million uh, people in Utah County. If everybody skipped one vehicle trip per week, that's a half a million vehicle trips that we've skipped per week. That adds up. So from individual, I'd like to, I'd like to zoom out to 30,000 feet again. Um, you, you have said that part of the climate strategy for, you know, uh, the GOP and for the Conservative Climate Caucus, steer away from unrealistic goals. Um, so what is that intersection, you know, urgent problem, realistic goals? What do you think of realistic goals? Well, um, I, I think that that's um, something that we need to refine in our message. We're, we're not yet ready as Republicans to say, you know, half by 2030, but I think we need to. I think we need to come out with those goals and, and, and do it soon. Um, but I think when you when you tell people that, you know, we're going to eliminate all air travel, we're going to eliminate all agriculture, that's when you start getting people to roll their eyes and say, that's not realistic. We're not going to do that. Um, when you hear people say, we're going to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030, they always have an asterisk by it. They don't know how they're going to do it. The technology doesn't currently exist to do it. So I, that's where I think the realistic uh, part is very important. And uh, what about within your party? I, I, you know, anecdotally, I've I've seen elected uh, Republican officials, uh, you know, say there's no problem. Uh, climate change has nothing to do with humans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know what the percentages are, but there are still some folks in the party that uh, espouse those views. Are, are you... Evangelizing to them? Is that, is that part of your mission? <laughs> it is a part of my mission. And I think if I had uh, 30 minutes with all of them, I, I could help them see this from, from a conservative perspective where they would feel more comfortable with it. Now, that being said, I think there's extremes on both sides. And so it's easy to point to the extremes on the Republican side of denial. But I think extremism on the left is also equally a big uh, impediment uh, to progress on this. And so I think I think it's incumbent on all of us to work on the extremes on, on both sides. Anything else you'd like to say about about this and about the Conservative Climate Caucus? Well, I, I, I would say to my good friends on the left, um, thank you for leading out on this. Um, we also want to be heard. We want to be at the table and we want to be thoughtful uh, members of your discussions. And to my friends on the right, I'd say, come join us. It's it's not as scary as it seems, uh, and it's actually um, fits right in with the conservative brand. I, I think people forget that, that Republicans were the originators of the EPA and clean air, clean water, and, and so many things, um, and conservation. I think it fits in nicely with the Republican platform, and uh, we, we need their voices at the table, and I hope they'll all join me. Well, we've been talking with uh, Congressman uh, John Curtis, uh, talking about the a conservative Climate Caucus, uh, of which he is chair. Congressman Curtis, thank you so much for taking time. Of course. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our thanks to Congressman Curtis. He represents Utah's 3rd District. He is the chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. Our thanks to the good folks at KCPW. That's where uh, Congressman Curtis was talking to me from for that interview. I want to put in a plug for tomorrow's show. Periodically, about quarterly, we do a, a nonprofit spotlight. Uh, there are many needs in our communities. Many step up to help. We'd love to shine a light on your favorite nonprofit or individual doing good in your community. Here's your opportunity. We'll give you a minute or two to plug. You can call in or email in. You can email in right now, of course, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com with your favorite nonprofit. We'll allow you to give a plug for them and do some good yourself there, upraxis at gmail.com. We'll, be having, we'll have Amy Anderson, Director of Outreach for Sunshine Terrace Foundation, Spiritual Counselor with Sunshine Hospice and Logan with us in studio, and hopefully hear from you, upraxis at gmail.com. That's the program tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Utah Public Radio's Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels, a show that explores all things food. Your hosts are Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, and Tammy Proctor, all from the History Department at Utah State University. I'm Jamie Sanders, and today it is Eating the Past's pleasure to welcome Dr. Lynn McNeil, Professor of Folklore at Utah State University. Lynn, along with her co-editors Carol Edison and Eric Eliason, have a new book entitled This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. The book explores the wealth of Utah's food culture, including its official foods such as fry sauce and yes, green jello, Utah's heritage of Native American and immigrant groups who carry their own distinct food traditions, the Latter-day Saint influence from food storage to apple beer, and ending with new food traditions such as Utah's ongoing soda wars. So Lynn, tell us about the origins of this book project. Well, the project began appropriately at a restaurant, the Black Sheep Cafe in Provo, during a board meeting for the Folklore Society of Utah. Eric Eliason, a professor of folklore at BYU, approached me about creating a reader on the unexpected depth of Utah food culture, which we were in that moment experiencing. The Black Sheep Cafe features a fusion of native Mexican and Spanish cuisine, and I immediately jumped at the idea, and we eventually brought in Carol Edison, our past amazing state folklorist, and we all got to work. Tell us a little more about how you became interested in the folklore food and and what exactly is food folklore? You know, food is one of the most overlooked elements of daily cultural expression that we have. Folklorists refer to food folklore as foodways, a term that encompasses not just what we eat, but also how, where, and with whom we acquire, prepare, and consume the food we eat. The thing is, we tend to pay close attention to food only when it's special. But the foods we eat every day can also tell us so much about the various folk cultures within which we exist and communicate and express ourselves. So Lynn, what is the most surprising thing you learned while creating This is the Plate? What surprised me most was the incredible diversity of Utah foodways. We initially conceived of the book as a kind of academic reader, but as we began digging into the topic, we kept turning up more and more foods that simply couldn't be left out. I mean, you can't have a book that claims to be all about Utah foods and not include something on fry sauce. 
or funeral potatoes, or Navajo mutton stew, or Bear Lake raspberries, or sand peat turkey, or foraging, or KFC, or the farm-to-table movement. So the book's format grew, and the end result is sort of a cross between a coffee table book and that academic reader. So you'll find in-depth chapters on pioneer foodways and canning and ethnic traditions, but also an overview of the dirty Dr. Pepper and the soda mixing shops that fought to trademark it. Great. And finally, Lynn, what is your personal favorite Utah food tradition? This is almost an impossible question. I don't know if it counts as my favorite Utah food tradition, but while we were working on the book, I found myself most taken with the necessary inclusion of alcohol. Utah as a state has long suffered from a false representation when it comes to alcohol. Since the 1800s, outsiders have been referring to Utah as dry. And since the 1800s, Utahns have been trying to convince people that you can indeed get a drink here. Everything from early breweries and distilleries to the wine-producing missions in southern Utah and the folk songs about Dixie wine that grew out of that region points to a really robust and often excitingly fraught history of alcohol in the state. Thank you. And yes, sincere thanks to Lynn McNeil for joining us today. Support for UPR's Eating the Past is made possible by USU Dining Services, with 16 options to choose from, including the core four cafes consisting of the Forum Cafe, Luke's Family Cafe on the Quad, Steeped slash Starbucks, and Shaw's 88 Kitchen. More information at usu.edu slash dining. And Love to Cook, a kitchen store offering kitchen appliances, tools, cooking classes, private events, and knife sharpening. Information on Instagram at love to cook Logan. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSK Vernal, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSL Richfield, KUSR Logan, and KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org or on the UPR app. for UPR's 2022 Utah legislative coverage is made possible in part by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. More information at idrpp.usu.edu.